Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which I say definitely count. Ooh, well, I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but I say the annuals do not count, Dan. Welcome to Kamsa. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for the second episode of season six of The Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. And boy, do we have a fun one for you guys today. Yeah, if you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. This podcast exists because of support of our Patreon members. If you want to receive early episodes, exclusive artwork, and keep this podcast going, go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com and consider joining our Patreon. In this season of The Amazing Spider Talk, we're going to be going back to the mid-80s when The Amazing Spider-Man title was handed over to one of the most legendary creative pairings in comics. They would even call themselves that. Yes, it is Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. It is a time of immense change in the comics industry, but together Tom and Ron return Spider-Man to its Ditko-inspired roots to create one of the most beloved runs on the title. As, as we insinuate, today we're going to be joined by the legendary Tom DeFalco and the equally legendary Ron Friends for the first time together on The Amazing Spider Talk. We specifically wanted to talk to them about their unique partnership in comics that has lasted four decades. Together, they've worked on Amazing Spider-Man, Spider-Girl, Marvel Team-Up, Thor, Thunderstrike, so much more. So many excellent titles, and they're going to talk about their process, their friendship, their bond together on our show. Dan, this is very exciting stuff. Yeah, I'm so thrilled about about this conversation because, like like I said, first of all, they're one of the best team ups ever in 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 creative forces and comics, and we've had them on the show so many times, but independently of each other. So. I, I was so thrilled that we got to, them to come on together for this one. And I think you get to see what makes them like work as creative partners uh, during this conversation. So, you know, whatever, as much as fun as it is to listen to you and I talk, it's more fun to listen to Ron and Tom talk. So let's get right to the interview. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends, the kind of guy that knows other friends who recommend. Find out about the things they create. But you're just friends, they're an amazing friend, a friend, a friend, a friend, they're an amazing friend. All right, Dan, well, we have two people on right now who are certainly not strangers to the show, but shockingly, 
especially given what we're going to talk to them about. This is the first time we've had them both on together at the same time in the same room or virtual room. So uh, a very special welcome to the legendary Tom DeFalco and the equally legendary Ron Friends. Thank you for for, for joining us. I mean, we are uh, embarking on a season where we're going to be talking a lot about your initial run on Amazing Spider-Man. But what we really wanted to talk to you about today was, was this very unique partnership that you had and you know we felt like we couldn't do it without both of you together you know we we have to see the chemistry in person so thank you so much for joining us <laughs> the chemistry in person huh <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much because yeah tony and i don't usually do these kind of things together so so it's it's a it's a pleasure to see you again after these 15 20 years Mr. Falco. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we haven't spoken in, what, has it been years? <laughs> or, or, or was it on Friday? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was, yeah. <laughs> One or the other. <laughs> Well, uh, well, you know, on, on that note, there there are so few collaborators in comics that have enjoyed the kind of relationship you both have had, uh, both in time and volume. Uh, I, I, but I'm curious, like uh, we have not discussed it with you before. How did you guys meet and establish your working relationship with each other? I think we met at, at a Pittsburgh convention uh, or some other convention at one point. Um, well, you had hired me. On uh, as as editor on Team Up, did did I hire you before we met? I that was yeah. I think when we met, we already had that editor freelancer relationship. Yes, yeah. I I got a call from Tom, and he was the new editor, or or he was at at the editor of Team Up. So when he uh, uh, he had seen my version of Spider Man in uh, Kesar, and uh, figured I didn't destroy 50 years of continuity so maybe i could do some team-ups for him so i i did a couple of fill-ins for him it doesn't really look like it but i was the regular guy on team up for a while that poster that people have seen that was in the stores that there was a big spider-man and the entire marvel universe poster i penciled it mike esposito inked it because we were you know at some point the regular team on on uh, marvel team up which all told, I think ended up being maybe what six issues or something before, before Danny came in and before we were hired on Amazing, you know that kind of thing. Uh, so that was during that transition too. But in person, we met at a, a smaller Pittsburgh show along with Butch Geis, and we went out to dinner and talked about comics as as we do, and found out that we enjoyed the same things about Marvel and about. The you know the way Stan structured things and hoo ha comics and fun and soap opera and and you know and, and keeping it interesting and, and keeping it fun because that that was around the time in the eighties where you know it was becoming the age of the anti hero and things and uh, so it was nice to meet somebody who wasn't trying to get more you know cinematic or more adult or more bloody or more you know. To find a, a kindred spirit who enjoyed hoo-ha action and angst in the mighty Marvel <laughs> manner was a pleasure. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, Ron and I were really on the same page. We, as he said, we liked the same stuff. So, 
So, so how do you maintain that friendship and working relationship with each other? I mean, you know, Dan and I, we know a lot about collaborations, obviously. And I mean, I don't know if I can maintain a friendship with him the way you guys do. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it goes both ways, buddy. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, see, one of us actually has a, has a real nice personality and is a really good guy. <laughs> and and I'm a bit of a stiff. Uh, so, <laughs> Sounds familiar. No. <laughs> I, mean, I, won't, I won't lie. I would I would say that one of the things that's helped our partnership, in the same way it's probably helped your partnership, is we, we live in separate states. <laughs> uh, you know, we're not we're not sharing an office or getting on each other's nerves or, you know, getting overly personal both of us have been through a lot in the course of our friendship but if if you start getting sick and tired of somebody you just hang up the phone and don't call them for a couple of days you know i i think a lot of marriages would last forever in a day if the man and the woman could just go to if the man and the woman could go to seriously neutral corners and you know or have their own homes or their own houses their own wings where they could regroup, you know, that kind of thing, and be together when you really want to be together. I dare not comment I, I upon that statement. The fact that for the longest time he was my boss, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and a very generous one at that. But, I mean, he's always been, I think the, the partnerships that have lasted last because of a, of a uh, serious need for a lack of ego. If you if you genuinely respect the person you're working with and what they bring to the table and and have your own ego under control, there's no reason that a partnership can't flourish for for decades. I, I, I genuinely believe that. I think when one person becomes if one person feels they're not being heard, you know, I, I think all the famous partnerships we've seen break up in comics. It comes down to communication. It comes down to one of the people not feeling heard and feeling that they'd be better off with a with a different either solo or with a different partner and and on and on and I it, there there's a lot of lot of things at work there but I I have always felt heard I mean there are moments I we just had one recently where I'm a little pissed off but you know I'm not going to take it out on but it's about the work it's it's not really about us it's about the work. You know, the friendship kind of happens by accident along the way from exposure. <laughs> you, know, that kind of you find out that when you do have the rare opportunities to be in a room together, you find out, wow, I, I like this person, too. That's really cool. You know. Well, Tom, now it's your opportunity to take it out on Ron. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, what Ron said, um, when when we started you know, throwing ideas together. We, 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 are, we both had the same goal, which was to do the best story we could. And, you know, Ron would throw his ideas in a pot. I'd throw mine idea, my ideas in a pot. We, we did it with to, totally without ego. And, and one of the things that's great about working with Ron is that, you know, he, he's an idea factory. Uh, he just comes up with idea after idea after idea. You know, if, if we're trying to put put a story together and both of us are just coming up with ideas and we're not married to any any of them, 
at some point we find something that we both like and and you know we both we both end up having the same reaction hey that hey that's cool or i never saw that before and we get excited about it and and i've always, <laughs> and i've always thought that if the creative people get excited about a story the readers are going to have to get excited too um and that's you know, kind of been it. You know, Ron and I. Yeah, we've stayed, we've stayed fans enough that we definitely write for ourselves. We we definitely write, create a book that we would want to read ourselves. Uh, there, there is no, you know, template that we follow that has nothing to do with what we wouldn't enjoy reading. I, I wish there was more material out there the way we do it because then I'd be reading more stuff. <laughs> He's currently working on a project with Pat Olive and I can't wait for it to hit the racks because I'll finally have something to read. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with, with all of that. I mean, the, you know, the interesting part about it too, that I, I never found with some other people that I, that I have had the opportunity to partner with is if I pitch an idea, and Tom doesn't think it works, he'll tell me why he does why it doesn't work. Whether whether it's a continuity thing that I forgot about, or whether it's you know I, I went, when I when I first came back on the Spider Girl after Pat's incredible run, uh, I was pitching a lot of ideas, but most of them were MC two ideas that I had had sitting around or always wanted to see happen with this generation of characters, but they weren't Spider Girl ideas. And the name of the book is Spider Girl. So, you know, Tom would occasionally have to rein me in and say, that's a neat idea. Is there some way we can make it a Spider Girl idea? And if we could, great. And if we couldn't, fine. And sooner or later, I got I got my head around it. And, you know, the amazing Spider Girl run, I'm very proud of, because I think we were we were pumping on all cylinders on the amazing Spider Girl run, as much, any, as, even as much as we were on, on the amazing Spider-Man run and, and the best of our Thor stuff. So uh, I, I still, I mean, it's still a great fun working with Tom. I always, because it, it is a tone that is the, the type of story that we enjoy doing. The way we enjoy handling the characters and the way we see the characters is all very simpatico. So, you know, I, I sit down and read a plot the way I used to way back on Spider-Man. I remember my first reaction every time I read a Tom plot was, there's no way this is going to fit into 22 pages. And it always did. It always fit great. And we had, but we, we didn't have a lot of wasted space either. We didn't have, you know, five pages of talking heads ever, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and again, that's something else that we both took from the best of the way the Marvel people, um, got together and, and, and came up with this wonderful, you know, plot art script thing that, that I think is just a, a genius way to put together comic. Was there a point in time at Marvel where you guys uh, specifically requested to work with each other? Or was that something that grew naturally when others no began to notice how well you worked together? It was actually, if you put together, we got fired off of Spider-Man. Right. We spent months not, you know, not a team. Right. And you were going to get hired on Thor anyway. Uh, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, um, I, at a certain point for uh, 
you know, crazy reasons. I was sent to England to deal with the Marvel UK K branch. And then when I came back from England, um, I hadn't been doing much writing for Marvel during that period of time. And I, I think Ron and I started to talk and, and we had heard that Daredevil was coming open. And we started to talk about putting together a pitch for Daredevil. I remember going into Ralph Macchio's office and saying, you know, Ralph, that he was the editor of, of Daredevil, I, you know, uh, Ron and I would like to, to do a pitch for, for Daredevil. Have you decided on your creative team yet? He says, no, no. He says, you guys would be great for Daredevil. And he said, but I really can't think about Daredevil now because I'm really, I'm really stuck. Thor is very late and I need a, I, I desperately need a Thor film. He says, do you think you guys could do a Thor film? And I said, yeah, we could probably do a film for any book on the line. Figuring, yeah, you know, a one-shot Thor film. So we did a Thor film. I don't remember which one, one it was. It was either the Secret Wars. It been the Secret Wars one. You always say that. Okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah I don't remember. <laughs> Featured the Enchantress <laughs> and happened during the Secret Wars. All right. So we did the Secret Wars one. And as we're finishing, you know, up on that, because we did that fairly quickly. Um, I said to Ralph, so you want to hear our Daredevil pitch? He says, not, not yet, because Thor's still really like, could you, any chance you could do a second Thor fill-in? And I said, uh, yeah, I guess. And then we did the once and future Thor, because our, our goal was to do fill-ins that didn't impact continuity. Um, that's why we did the Secret Wars. That's why we did the future Thor. And then... I, as we were working on that, or getting towards the end of that, Ralph said to me, okay, I want you guys to do a book. And I said, Daredevil. And he said, no. He said, no, Thor. I said, we can't do Thor. We don't do Cosmic. And he said, you just did two issues. And I said, they're villains. And he said, no, no, no. I, you know, I think you guys could do it. But at the time, Sal was the regular penciler on Thor. And I, I, I remember somebody said to me, well, just, you know, just call up Sal, tell him uh, you come with your own pencil. <laughs> <laughs> said, There's no way I'm calling up Sal Buscema and him, you're off Thor because I come with my own pencil. Give me a break. Um, but then uh, Jim Salakrup happened to overhear the conversation. He says, hey, listen, um, w would it be okay if I uh, offered Sal one of the Spider-Man books? And I said, you want Sal on the Spider-Man book? He says, yeah. I says, I, I, you know, I'd kill for Sal on the Spider-Man book. So I said, let's leave it up to Sal. So we called up Sal and said, would you rather draw Thor or Spider-Man? He says, oh, definitely Spider-Man. <laughs> and, and, and then Sal went to, went to Spider-Man. And that's how Ron and I ended up on Thor. You so know? would you would you say that that was the point where you guys kind of, as a creative team, were like locked in for the long haul? Like, did that feel like we're like officially a partnership on multiple books at this point? I, I you know, I don't know if I... I still don't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know, because I, I do know that at one point, uh, while we were on Thor... Uh, Grunwald came to us, you know, he came to me and he said to me, um, 
how would you and Ron like to do Captain America? And I thought, oh, I, you know, Captain America is my dream book. I'd love to do Captain America. And I know that Ron loves Captain America too, but we just started around the time of the Eric Masterson stuff. You know, I called Ron and I said to him, you know, what are you thinking? And he said, you, you could tell me what he said, Ron. Well, actually, I remember it a little bit differently. I remember it being after Thunderstrike started. Oh, after Thunderstrike started? I don't know. Because I had, I had a conversation with Ralph uh, about uh, Thunderstrike. Because at that point, I wasn't sure. Because I, we, we were so committed to what we were doing, I didn't want to try doing two books a month. It might have been possible, but I wouldn't have been able to give full attention to either title. And we were very invested in Thunderstrike. So maybe it was maybe it was just the Eric Masterson. I think it, I, I think know. it was because because this is when Mark ended up writing. I'm not going to argue the point. Believe me, I won't. I won't argue the point. But I remember telling. Uh, uh, no, I here's why I think it was Thunderstrike, because I asked Ralph if Thunderstrike's in good shape. I said, "Is Thunderstrike selling well? Is it in good shape? Are we, you know, pretty open ended on Thunderstrike?" And at that point, he was able to tell me. It's selling great. There's no reason that there isn't a happy future for Thunderstrike. And I said, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to pass. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm going to pass on Captain America because we're invested in Thunderstrike. And then it was, unfortunately, you know, all the Perlman crap happened and Thunderstrike was canceled for the stupid reasons it was canceled. There was nothing Ralph could do about it, but it was one of those. I remember it being one of those moments where I, felt ridiculous because you know it's like oh boy if only if only you had a crystal ball you know that kind of thing i i, I think i think you're confusing conversations because i think the captain america thing came much earlier because because when, when when i said no rumor then ended up giving up the editorship of captain america and writing the book himself and i think what you're thinking about with thunderstrike was was when i was offered fantastic four you know? That's possible too, Tom. I like I said, I there is no way we're going to get into a conflict about memory because I don't trust mine as well as you I don't should. trust yours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. well, 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 we could say, yeah, you're older and at least that much more senile, so believe my version. <laughs> All right, I'm I'm going to defuse this right here and, and jump to another question, Ron. You you alluded to this um, a few minutes ago. The 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 Marvel style or the house style and you know we've we've heard about marvel method we we hear about full script so just just once and for all what what is the the falco friends method of creating comics what, what, what who who does what it's the it's the it's the marvel method it is we we get on the phone and we talk about ideas and once an idea gels and we get a theme and we get a we get something that'll make a good 22 pages tom goes and structures it as a plot and gets it into the 22 pages and hands it to me and i pencil it and as i'm penciling it sometimes other ideas occur to me and i'll put them in liner notes or call him up and say hey what about this and he goes great and we stay you know we we uh refining the idea let's say and uh and then it goes back to him to script and he finds things in the script that weren't you know that might necessarily have been in the pencils and and it becomes this finished product that is hopefully the best effort of 
not just us, but an inker and a colorist and a letterer and an editor. Uh, and that's, you know, whether, whether there's a lot of typing paper involved or whether there's a handshake or a phone call or, or, a, or somebody jumping up, acting out something on an office desk, it, that's the Marvel method is collaboration is, you know, not just a cold full script that is handed to somebody the writer may never meet. And then he does his gig and then it's, you know, handed off and neither one of them sees it again until it's printed. You know, that, that is more the corporate DC version, which is unfortunately the way the industry is pretty much right now. Um, just because all the Marvel guys started to started to age out and get fired and leave and nobody was around them to really keep it alive, you know, keep it, uh, keep, keep it alive. Well, I mean, DeFalco went over to DC for a while there during the new 52 and was producing plots. And he was working with a lot of young illustrators that looked at his plots and had no idea what to do with a plot. So they called in guys like me and Scott McDaniel and, I believe like Carl Potts or, you know, I have a couple of guys, you know, expats from Marvel called them in to, to do layouts for these young kids because they were, they were struggling with the blank page. So does that, it's a shame, you know, does that method you guys talked about, like setting your ego aside, like I could see that method you know, contributing to like ego conflict, like not wanting to let go of something. But for you guys, does that method kind of help reinforce this idea of keeping your ego out of it? Because there's going to be another set of hands on it, you know, at some point down the line. You mean working Marvel style? Or yeah, working, working Marvel script? style. Yeah. Working Marvel style, you kind of stay involved. I mean, you know, my, my, my situation with Tom doesn't, dictate my situation with anchors but in most cases you know working with al milgram for a long period of time working with brett breeding working with joe sinnott if there was a question or a comment or if i'm looking at my xeroxes oh this was always sal's favorite thing if i was looking at my xeroxes and saw something i forgot or something i screwed up on he always loved it when i called him because he could bust my balls about it you know he could always yeah, well, Ron, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure I could redraw your artwork. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> if you're not going to do it right, I guess one of us has to. You know, he always took great pleasure in uh, in giving me a hard time about it. But he he was, of course, at Salva Sama, so he was able to fix anything, any anything I screwed up. But you know, that that's a separate part of it. But for us, any of our longer runs, it's always been a team effort. It's not just Tom and I, separate from the anchor and even, the, I mean, because Tom was in the office for most of it, so he was connected to even the colorists and the letterers and all that guy, because Mike Rockwitz was working in the office at the time anyway, wasn't he? Rick Parker was our letterer for the longest time, and and Mike Rockwitz, and I mean, we've always had, we've always had such a team atmosphere on the books we've worked on that when we launched Thunderstrike. Everybody wanted to go with us. Al Milgram, the anchor, and Rick Parker, the letterer, and uh, 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 I just said his name. Mike Rockwitz, our colorist. Everybody went over to Thunderstrike with us, which was unheard of. 
I mean, it, why wouldn't they just stay on the nice stable Thor title that they were pulling a regular paycheck? You know, that kind of thing. So it's always been very gratifying that, you know, we, plus the fact Tom believes that if you're trying to write 12 issues a month, take ideas from anybody. You know, I mean, Al Williamson, when he was thinking Pat Olive, when I really like this one character, are we going to see her again? Are we going to do more with her? You bet we are. (laughs) Al called me up a couple of times and said, hey, you know, this one character, he, you know, he did this thing and I didn't think he would. We should see more of this. And I thought, okay, that's a good idea, Al. And, you know, we, uh, listen, I'm no great genius. I'm happy to steal an idea from anybody. If you guys have any ideas, feel free. (laughs) (laughs) Can we get Jim Shooter to pay for them? Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, go after Jim. (laughs) I will, I will, I will. So... So when you when you start on a creative run together, now I know you know you just described a couple of the you know your first runs with Marvel were kind of fill-ins. But what are those first conversations about when you're? I mean, are you like laying the groundwork? Are you setting goals? Are you establishing how you're going to work? Like, what is it? What is it? <laughs> it's always about the character. Uh, we we spent hours and hours on the phone talking about people that don't exist as if they do uh, and how we, you know, through our own filters, how we've always seen Peter Parker, how we've always seen his relationship with Aunt May, how we've always seen his relationship with Mary Jane, you know, how we've seen Mary Jane. We just compared notes and, and talk about the characters. And, you know, that reminds me of somebody I knew when I was in high school, you know, that kind of thing. And, and we would, try to firm up a, a, a firm vision between the two of us based on all the other work that everybody else had done on that character as to who these characters are and how they feel about things that we might put them through, you know, that kind of thing. And with, with Thor, I remember the first conversation we had was basically just how we saw the character and what we thought was unique about the character and and we decided pretty quickly that we definitely wanted to keep the the Earth Asgard ratio more even, and ultimately reestablish a, 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 a an Earth identity point. Because I we always felt that the 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 real interesting, fascinating thing about Thor is his relationship with us, with with mortals. Is that uh, from all the Asgardians? He finds us worthy of respect and awe, and he's he's amazed by we idiots. Part of that is because of the Don Blake connection, but also part of it is just because he's spent time around us and he and he's worked with the Avengers. He's met Captain America, so he he has a different view than the rest of the Asgardians. And to bring that home, we really wanted to reintroduce a human identity and we didn't want to go back to Don Blake because Don Blake never really existed. So we wanted to, to do the merger thing. We planned that way out in the head, but that was one of our early ideas that we just played the slow game on because we decided uh, Tom being a genius writer, he decided that, you know, before you merge them, 
let's introduce Eric and actually get to the point where the readers like Eric for himself, who this guy is and and that he's got he's got the guts, but not the guns, you know, to do it. And so that when we merge them, nobody's offended. Nobody thinks we're, you know, cutting Thor in half or anything like that. And it ended up working in our favor to do that, to play the long game on it with Eric. And, uh, you know, I can think of uh, dozens of examples like that where, you know, we had ideas early on that were not meant for the first six issues because we were going to play the long game. Because back then, if you got hired to do a title, we had spinner racks. We had sales. You could do a goofy Christmas issue and not worry about your sales falling to the point that you get canceled the next month. You know, you didn't live with that paranoid sort of Damocles over your head every month. Thank God, because that's that can't be any fun. And, and sales could actually grow on titles. And, and, and they did, in fact, grow. Yeah, that, that was back when if you had a regular team that was coming back every month and there was consistency month to month in a title, you built numbers. You built an audience. Because if somebody said, hey, have you seen what's going on at Thor? I've really been enjoying the last couple of issues. And somebody goes and checks it out. It's still the same people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they can say, oh, you're right. Yeah, this is kind of fun. And it's not just going to be for six issues or 12 issues or a two-year arc or anything like that. You know, it, it's this is the book until it's not the book anymore. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, so it was a very different time in that way as well. Yeah, yeah. Just the, the kind of relationship you had with your audience was different. And a lot, a lot of what we did were one-issue stories, two-issue stories. Occasionally we do three-issue stories. We, we realized that our attention spans would start to lag after three issues. So I think three issues was was the maximum for us. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're drawing the same characters and the same backgrounds and the same environments and everything for more than two or three issues, you're ready for something fresh. You're ready for that character to move on to something else, which is, which is not changing the character. You know, one of my pet peeves with the movie guys, as great a job as they do generally, is when they have that attitude of, you know, Iron Man 2 rolled around, and the comic really didn't show us much of a path forward. So we had to come up with it ourselves. And it's like, are you out of your mind? At that point, there were 40, 50 years worth of Iron Man comics. <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, and as much as I admire and think Chris Hemsworth has done a terrific job for the most part on Thor, you know, for him to say that he gets bored after playing Thor the same way in two movies, it's like, we wrote the character for like, what, seven or eight years. <laughs> we never got bored. What is the matter with you? <laughs> yeah, right. And he's not even working all year on it. He's doing like three months here and there. I don't understand that attitude because you can be consistent with the character and still put him through his paces and put him into different situations and have him react in different ways. And, you know, I mean, certainly I don't agree with every Marvel Comics treatment of Thor. I mean, they we now let the creatives decide who the character is every six issues or every two years or something. And I don't necessarily, uh, you know, agree with every permutation of the character, but that's what makes horse races too. That's what makes 
some runs of books sell better than other runs of books is certainly Walt came in and had a different take on four and everybody loved it. You know, um, our, our decision when we got on hired on the book was, are we going to try to be a bad Walt substitute and fail? Or are we going to go back to, you know, some of the Lee and Kirby stuff that we really identified with. And for me, even the Jerry Conway stuff and, take what we can from Walt and from those guys and build our own Thor, our own approach to Thor and, uh, and, and do it the best job we can via that. One of the things I've always appreciated about your collaborations is how much, like you're saying, you go back to character at the essence of it and, and even go back to the source material. You, you once said to us on the show that you would refer to Peter as Pete, like you were intimate friends with the guy. And I'm curious, you know, on that note, you know, do you ever feel like you uh, project your own friendship with each other into the development of these characters in the comics? Like, do, do you feel like that friendship you've developed has found its way onto the page? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. I think a lot of the warmth of Spider-Girl, you know, comes from you know, the friendship that we, we had and, and the friendship, you know, with Pat. You know, Spider-Girl was a real family book. Ron and I both have a great respect for family. I, I, I would say that it, it, it finds its way in. I, I you know, I, I rarely have been involved with anybody who is a comics fan. I, in fact, I've never been involved with anybody who's a comics fan. Uh, I would, you know, I would like to, to meet a woman where I said, you know, if you read... <clears throat> a next and if you read our eric masterson stuff and if you read spider girl you'll get to know me you know that kind of thing i've never had that opportunity and never, and never probably never we can all dream right <laughs> but the uh the interesting thing too is that i think it has it, it's reflective of i i think our friendship and our respect for each other in the work is reflected in the characters being generally uh, well-adjusted, well-meaning people. There was nothing in Eric Masterson. The only thing about Eric Masterson that wasn't Tom or I is the fact that he was a single dad. And, and my brother was a single dad at the time. So, you know, those, we we write what we know. We write what we've seen and experienced and, and have taken in. When Hercules was a regular in Thor, those scenes with Hercules and Eric, when Eric finally gave up Kevin, come on, man. That, you know, real men hug and real men feel like their heart's been ripped out. And, you know, those are things that, you know, you know Tom and I never had a discussion where it was, well, you can't have your lead character burst into tears. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, we're, we're very simpatico when it comes to that kind of thing as well. So, uh, and, and even like with Eric Masterson, we've never, we've never had a serious conflict about who these characters should be. You know, Eric Masterson was conceived and became Thunderstrike during the 90s when Wolverine was racking up a body count. The Punisher was one of the top sellers. And, you know, the X-Books were being incredibly tended to be more violent and, 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 and more sexual and, and the whole bit. 
our double splash in 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 uh, Thunderstrike number one was Eric disarming Blood Axe, not beating the crap out of him, not pounding on him for you know seven panels or anything, but wedging the mace under the thing as they slammed together and making a move to disarm him. And that was that right there is what we're all about. I mean, Eric Masterson, Thunderstrike as a character, always talked first. You know, his his he never just crashed through the the, the the wall and started beating on somebody. It was always one of those camera moves where you'd come over and he would be standing there looking cool as hell. But he'd say, stop what you're doing. You know, I, the one scene I'm thinking of was in the whiteout issue where he said, you heard the man. He had nothing to do with your tragedy. Let him go. And he always tried to talk first. Even even with the juggernaut, he got <laughs> walked up his back. He tried to talk to him first. He tried a citizen's arrest on on juggernaut. So you know that that speaks to you know where we can find the humor in these characters and where we can find the humanity in these characters, and 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 that's that's different from just treating them like action figures. You know, I mean, you you don't want to do that. You don't want to get to a point where you know. The only, you know, the one note character where, you know, wh- well, what's, what's the deal with your character? He, you know, strikes first and asks questions later. That's going to get really boring after a while, you know. So so I think in that way, all of our characters are, are somewhat of a distillation of Domino's. We were very fortunate. I mean, Thomas talked about it in other interviews that a lot of this cl- conflict between Pete and uh, Mayday in Spider-Girl were things that he observed between his his brother and niece, you know. We all use life like that, you know. I've, I wish some of my friends read my work because there are things they say that show up in the book. <laughs> you know, I, well, there was a girl I dated that she, always, she and her mom always were very proud of their attitudes, their, their liberated attitudes towards men and everything. And and one of her favorite sayings was, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And we used it in Spider-Girl. Davida said it to Mayday as something that her grandmother used to say, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, so that's where we get our material is from our friends and our lives. And, and uh, you know, so, so much of it makes it in there. And. So, yes, our friendship absolutely uh, influences how we handle these characters. I mean, Hercules was a lot of fun because you can't hate the guy. You know, he's a butthead, but you can't hate the guy. (laughs) We got to write both sides of Hercules because we got to write him as comedy relief in Thor, but we also got to write that miniseries where he was deadly serious. He, He had been knocked down several pegs and the rest of the superheroes had disappeared in heroes uh, reborn. And, and so he was in a much darker place, but it was the same guy. And our entire journey over those three issues was getting Hercules to laugh. again. You know, so it's, it's the greatest job in the world. (laughs) It it is. 
I'm going to not talk for a while. Listen, don't talk to me. I'm a writer. I communicate better in second draft. Um, <laughs> well, you know, go on. I was going to say, so, so maybe, maybe this is more of a top question or a wrong question. I don't know. But I was going to ask about with new characters. When you're developing a new character, what's what's kind of the creative method there for the for the two of you? Is it is it name and characteristics first? Is it design first? How do, how does the collaboration kind of work when it comes to developing a new character? It, you know, I I I think whether it's a new character or an old character or whatever, we just you know put our heads together and try to figure out who is this person, and that. And, you know, Ron alluded to it, but we try to look at, at each character as if they're a real person and try to get them to act like real people as opposed to the standard comic book character. Like, like Ron said, when, when, um, when we were doing, you know, Spider-Girl in the beginning and Peter Parker found out his daughter was playing Spider-Girl, Spider he reacted very badly to that. Mary Jane said to him, wait, when you were when you were a teenager, you're doing the same thing. And he said, like any of us would have, but I knew what I was doing. It, it, you know, it's OK for me to risk my life as a teenager, but God forbid my my precious daughter should risk her life as a teenager. Now, a lot of comic book fans couldn't, you know, just couldn't accept that. They kept thinking we had no idea of who Peter Parker was uh, because yeah, he had been Spider-Man. Of course he would support his daughter right away. Yeah, right. Those were all, those, what? Those were all the readers who weren't fathers. <laughs> those were all the readers who weren't fathers. <laughs> you know, you know a, a character, an action figure, reacts you know, by the numbers. A real person, you know has more of an emotional connection to it. And, and, and now I'm going to give you another complaint I had. When, when Spider-Girl first came out, you know, it was said 15 years in the future, which was uh, 2013, because it came out in, in, in uh, 1998. And everybody, I can't tell you how many reviews we had People were complaining, it's set in the future. Where are the flying cars? <laughs> <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah, because we were we was still there. I, I I think part of it was we were competing with Batman Beyond, where an 80-year-old Bruce and they still have, you know, skyscrapers that have not yet to be built and uh flying cars and all that kind of stuff. Because yeah, in one generation, give me a break. <laughs> uh, you, because I remember at one point I was having that discussion with a fan and I said, wait a minute, think 15 years ago. Are things really all that different? And he went, oh, I get your point. Yeah, they really are, aren't they? I went, no, <laughs> no. No, my point is they're not. I mean, you know, phones might be smaller, but, you know, microwaves still work. Uh, you know, people are still, I, I used to see things in Time Magazine, that, like trending fashion things and i would include them in spider girl and wouldn't you know the only ones i ever included were things that never caught <laughs> you know. uh, one was that young girls were going to start wearing these like straps around right below the knee that would be like pant bottoms but they'd wear them with skirts 
so that the top of their legs would be bare. And then from the, from the knee down, there, there'd be a pant leg. And I drew DeVito wearing them in an issue. And sure as hell, they never went anywhere. That never <laughs> caught on. You know, I mean, so few things ever do. But, you know, the people that criticize us for any of that stuff, not only does the future not happen that quickly, things are also on a wheel and stuff comes back around. You know, I mean, elephant jeans, elephant pant leg jeans came back for a while there, you know, and and uh, bare midriffs are, have left and come back already since Spider-Man. Because bare midriffs were all, when, when Pat was drawing the book, bare midriffs were all the rage, even in high schools. And he 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 drew Mayday wearing that a few times. I drew Mayday wearing that in the in 105, in the original appearance. I had her wearing a, a top with a pair of midriff. And then they went out of style completely. And now they're coming back. Now I now I see them on TV again, and I see them coming back again. And it's like, what the, you know. I remember on January 1st, 2013, Ron called me up and said, it's, it's now 15 years. Where's my freaking flying car? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so when you do sit down, like you, you've talked to us before about the, like the deck of cards, you know, designing the, the characters from the Spider-Man run and, and, and things like that. But like when you do actually sit down to, to come up with these characters, like the, the ones you've invented whole cloth, you know, is it name and characteristics first? Does Ron take a whack at the design and that helps firm up who they are as a person? Like, what what's the collaboration like? It's all kinds of different things. Uh, if Tom has the idea, sometimes he'll come up with a, you know, a, a little write-up that reads a lot like a Marvel Universe handbook, you know, write-up or something. That's what he did with Silver Sable and the Puma, who came from the animal cards. If it's a character that, that that I've had kicking around in my head, I'll send him the visual and say, you know, you think there's anything we could do with this? And the name might change or some of the visual might adjust to, to wherever we're going. But I'm trying to think of a time, you know, other than we, I don't think we've ever just sat there and went, you know, it'd be a cool character. It's always like, what do we need for the next story? You know, I mean, Eric was very specific to, we wanted to create this other identity for Thor, uh, you know, uh, uh, to contrast and compare and be metaphorical with and everything, which is why he was a single father. And Spider-Girl, of course, was, you know, spin off of the Spider-Man character. I mean, so, yeah, I guess the only characters we create from whole cloth really are the villains. And usually they're to serve a purpose, you know. Mr. Uh, right. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. We, well, but that was, yeah, that was like one of the only times that we've, so, so what do we want to do? If we're going to do a, a, a new Tom DeFelco, Ron Friends character, what do we want to do? And I, that. The first thing we decided, what we were, we wanted to do a an athlete character. We wanted to do a Captain America Daredevil kind of guy, not cosmic powered, but you know one of those tumbling, uh, jumps into fifteen guys and comes out, you know, all that kind of stuff. We, that that's, you know, we, that was the first thing we decided, 
But the name and a red and white version of the character was somebody that I had come up with for an incidental character in MC2. Just during some period of time, it was out of an old sketchbook, um, and his costume was different. We I reworked the costume over and over and over again until we came up with what what we ended up with, both liking. But uh, but yeah, the name uh, you know calling a character Mister Wright was was something that I had as an incidental background character in the MC2 universe that we never got around to, and. Uh, it just seemed a great thing to to build on, you know. Uh, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. So I, I don't know. Is do you? Is there? It's any. There's no way we could write a book about it, or boil it down to a technique. Or there's anything. no template. <laughs> but when it yeah, when it comes to those villains, you know, do, Tom, when you're coming up with this plot, like, do you? like come up with a scenario and then try to find the right villain for that thing. You know, like I need Spider-Man to face off against a overwhelming threat or a, a businessman of some kind. Does that come first or is it really more kind of like in the ether, uh, you know, that these things kind of shake up? You know, I think, I think it's kind of organic. I think, you know, Ron and I, Sometimes we we know what what the theme is, and we know what we want to accomplish in the, in the story. And then as we talk about it, you know, the villain slowly kind of takes shape. Um, just like a lot of times, there, there there have been times when the next issue is coming, and and you know I have no ideas on on what what, what we're going to do next issue. And Ron doesn't, and we start talking, and uh, you know, an hour or so later, we've got a fully fully formed story. I think the important thing to bring up here too is that we are not working in in a vacuum. We are hired to play in the best sandbox ever created in, in a for a fictional universe, and so as a as a fan from the time I was a kid. I mean, there are always, I've always liked to draw this. I've always wanted to draw this villain. So you've always got that to pull from. I remember a story I read in 1974 that this really resonated with me because this character said this to that character. And, you know, that's something I would love to to do something like or revisit with those characters or, or whatever, you know, that, uh, we, you know, we're, we're playing off of, we're building on the shoulders of Titans and it's, you know, you can't separate that from, from the process because the process is you get to inhabit this world and, and play with it. And very much so with the MC2 stuff, with the Spider-Girl stuff, you know, we got to decide what we were going to keep from the 616 universe and what had evolved and what had changed and what didn't you know, that kind of thing. And we got to be in our own little corner where nobody bothered us and we didn't have to be part of the summer crossover and all that kind of stuff. You know? uh, and it was a pleasure. Let me. <laughs> <laughs> we, had a, we had a ball. We just, the 12 issues, the 12 issues we did of Anax were some of the most fun I've ever had creatively, partly because 
uh, Tom was editing the entire, you know, all three books and, you know, had other things on his mind. So I got to, you know, he, he was very open to whatever ideas I had. So there, you know, there were char- those were characters I cared about and, and we were playing with things like, uh, you know, the, the sons, the sons of the serpent from the old Avengers books back in the sixties. It was all about racism and how much better are we yet? You know, I mean, you don't think the sons of the serpent would still have a branch somewhere and, <laughs> and Tom even militarized them and called them the soldiers of the serpent. And, and that tied in with a, you know, I said, boy, that could be really cool to tie that in with the, the Seth character that we had in Thunderstrike being the serpent in the garden and everything, you know. The only difference today would be that people would complain that the books are too political. And it's like <laughs> nothing has changed. I always laughed. I always laugh that off, though, because I if I'm a lefty, Marvel contributed. <laughs> you know? um, that's, that's all the, that that's just part of what was going into Ron's gourd. So if you, you know, I, I would proudly say that I am a, you know, a liberal and a progressive. So uh, I may have just lost some readers. There. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if I, if, you know, if that's who I am and Stan and his crew contributed. Totally, totally, um, totally. But it's, you know, I, yeah, the, the, the political side of it. I mean, because we, we did, we had uh, American dreams say that uh, most Americans are not uh, racists and don't want to hear about this crap and believe that America is stronger for its diversity. You know, we had her give that speech in, in an issue and, and we had the crowd out in Times Square applauding it because it ended up on a monitor somewhere, you know, that kind of thing. So I, you know, they, they say the secret of life is something to love, something to love, something to do and something to believe. And I'm very lucky because the thing I love is also what I do. So that's nice. And if, if you had, if you nailed me down to a belief, my belief is that most people are decent. Most people are good. Given the opportunity, they're going to do the right thing. Groups of people. What was the, the old line from the, the first, uh, Men in black. A person is smart. People are dumb. Exactly. Yeah. And I I very much believe that. We've obviously hit upon the theme of collaboration a lot over this conversation here. Um, I'm going to I'm going to hit on it one more time here. So, you know, given the passage of time and how that has contributed to just the, the, the dynamic and the communication styles between, you know, you and Tom and, you know, artists and writer, you know, we, there's a story, Tom, uh, Dan and I had uh, a guest on the show a few years ago. This, they, they wrote a very tight knit run of comics and they said, they revealed on our show, Oh, Actually, this is the very first time we've ever spoken to each other because, you know, with with email and this and that, we could just do all this. And I got my floor, my, my jaw just drops to the floor because I was like, how can you collaborate that tightly with that kind of dynamic? But it can be done now. So from your standpoint, 
you know, working through the years and, you know, kind of as technology has adapted and more, how, ha how has that impacted your communication style, your dynamic, I mean, or has it? I mean, is it just made it easier? Has it, has, have, has the techniques changed for you at all? Like how does, how has that contributed for you? It, I, I don't see any, any real difference. Ron and I just recently worked on, on something together. Can we mention that? <laughs> You're talking about the, the the Infinity thing, yeah, or the or, or the Rebel Studios thing. The Infinity. Uh, thing. I don't know. I don't, we we worked know, on two things that. together. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, we just did one of those. Uh, I guess Marvel Unlimited has like a scrolling thing. Yeah, the the Infinity the scrolling things. Yeah, they're great. The Infinity thing. We we did a, a two part a next you know, short story for that. And, uh, and then we also did an eight page for, for a new company that's starting up with, uh, that Tom may still be working on. Not to derail the answer. Uh, they recently had a, uh, you know, Mayday Parker story on there. Were you guys approached about that? I mean, it's so different than anything you guys did that I was kind of astounded by it that like, if they were going to bring it back for such a small thing, why not go to you guys? <laughs> well, actually, Dan, if we could, I, I would love to know what the content was. So at some point, if you want to chat on private message or something, I would love to know because uh, I've, I've heard from a few fans who were not happy with it, that there were some continuity glitches and things like that. But, you know, that's that's part of the biz, as Tom would say. Yeah. It, it, it's a it's a whole new world. I think that um, if we came up with Spider Girl today, I don't know if Ron and I would be the the guys assigned to do it. The, the the people assigned to do it. I think for some reason, if the if the character is a female character, they feel it has to be a female creative team. And yet, some of the best Punisher stuff I ever read was. By people who were not male and were never indicted for murder. <laughs> what? Yeah. And they were never indicted for murder. <laughs> that we know of. That we, yeah. <laughs> Some of the best Hulk stories I've read were from people who didn't die from radiation poisoning. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, and, and, and I've often said I've never actually been convicted. People <laughs> often mistake an indictment for a conviction, no convictions. <laughs> Well, we'll make sure we put that in the show notes, Tom. Mm -hmm. Well, let's wait until it. Until, mm -hmm. When is this show coming out? Because that might have changed by the time that happens. We've, we've got a few weeks still. You know, going back to the question about communication styles. So, Tom, you're saying it hasn't really changed. Ron, do you feel the same? I would concur. I, I think it's easier now because, we, one, we've completely cut out the fax machine. And Tom can send me a, you know, an entire plot in an email, you know, things like that. So those kind of things, that's fine. Uh, do he and I communicate a lot through email? No. Do we occasionally uh, contact each other through private message or something? Sometimes. But mostly it's going to be a phone call because we're old school. I, there is a difference. I've, I've noticed the difference these last few times we worked with Marvel that there's no phone calls with the editors anymore. It's all that's all. Sometimes it's a little harder to to get messages across. And, and uh, you know, when you're talking about creative things or, you know, something as specific as coloring something, or sometimes it's hard to get your point across, you know, that kind of thing. 
uh, back and forth in an email. So that can be frustrating. Uh, the idea of not talking to an editor and not developing a relationship that way with an editor is very, that's very foreign to me because of the era that I was working in Marvel. So that I've noticed that as a difference. Um, I, I've been working with inkers. I, I just did a project with Pat Olive where he inked it digitally. I sent him scans of the pencils and he inked it digitally. So the pencils exist and the inks only exist in cyberspace. Brett Breeding, on the other hand, when I work with him, he's outputting my pencils as blue lines and inking them on separate boards because he's been preferring to work that way, which, you know, mostly it only affects things in the artwork aftermarket. You know, it, it sometimes affects sales there. But, you know, it it's generally the same thing. You know, you're handing your stuff off. In in my case, I'm I'm just not dropping it FedEx anymore. I'm taking it home and scanning it and sending it via email to uh, to the anchor. But uh, I mean, so I would say in general, I mean, I'm always happy. I don't have to fax things anymore because fax were a nightmare. And it's it's you know it's better to scan, reference, and send it. You get a more uh, accurate color from a scan than you do from the old. Uh, color Xeroxes. I remember at one point when we were doing first developing the Fantastic Five and uh, the orange that I used on the thing when I zero, when I made full color Xeroxes to send it as reference to the office, it darkened up where the, the colorist thought it was red. And the first pages on Fantastic Five came in and the thing was red and Tom had to say, no, he's the same orange he always was. And it was good. You know, apparently somebody thought he had gotten a sunburn in the last fifteen years. But uh, maybe, maybe somebody so, painted yeah, I mean, uh, over the rock surface. There you go. Yeah, Alicia. Alicia went from uh, sculpting to, to to painting her boyfriend. I mean, so I, I like with anything, the tools make things a lot more convenient. You know, but you still need. I I always still believe you need the the brain and the hands to use the tools for their best, uh, uh, you know, to the, to the best, uh, what am I trying to say? To the best of their utility. Yeah. I mean, to answer the question, it, it's made things simpler, but I don't think it's intrinsically changed the way Tom and I actually do the work that we do. So final question, uh, what do you guys think was the most important lesson you learned about working together during your time on Amazing Spider-Man, if you can remember, always listen to Ron. I I, I think we, we we mentioned it earlier is just be an idea factory with no ego attached to the ideas, and don't be married to any idea. Uh, so many times, you know, approach Ron. I had this brilliant idea for a story. And I, I thought to Ron, he said, yeah, that's pretty good. And we'd start talking about it. And then we'd get a bunch of other ideas. And the next thing I, I knew was we had a whole different story that had no connection whatsoever with the idea that started the thing. But what we ended up with was so much better than the idea that I, that I thought was such a brilliant thing to begin with. The no ego thing is the most important thing to take away from this conversation if you're going to collaborate with somebody. 
I'm going to tell the story as quickly as I can. I was called to my alma mater high school because one of the teachers who had actually been a fan as a kid and showed up at one of my original uh, talks and all this kind of stuff was starting a comic book club. And they, they had a large group of kids that were interested. They were all going to divide up into groups of editors and uh, writers and pencilers and, and creatives. And they were going to create, they were, they were going to create like four groups of, of, of each of the jobs and create a comic book together. And then at the end of the year, they were going to present their finished comic book and blah, blah, blah. So I, I was called in to give a general talk about the creative process, which I did. And I also stressed, you know, the fact that you do your job as good as you can. You know, if you're handed a plot, if the editor has approved it, then your opinion is not needed. And your job is to do the best job you can translating that visually because that's your job. Then you pass it on to the next guy, the next guy, the next guy. And after I finished my talk, I had a dozen kids separately come up to me and go, what if I don't, what if I don't think the guy that's the editor what if I don't think he knows what he's doing? <laughs> I said, uh, I said, uh, and what's your job? Oh, I'm the writer. I said, then uh, you man up and you listen to his ideas. And if something's better, you use it. And if not, you make your case. But if he's the editor, he gets final say. You know, and it was the same thing. I mean, pencilers were going, well, if I, what if I don't like the story I can handle? I said, do you want to be part of the project? Well, yeah. Well, then you draw the story you're given <laughs> to the best of your ability. And if you don't do it to the best of your ability, you're the problem. And, I mean, I've heard professional stories where guys were handed a plot and they turned into something completely different, thinking that, what, the writer and the editor were going to get it back and think, hey, this is better. Let's print this. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's great. So... That ego thing, it's, it's just amazing how quickly with somebody who sees themselves as creative, it's amazing how quickly that, that can kick in. And if, that is, if that's who you are, that's fine because a lot of real art is created by a singular person with a singular vision and a singular voice. I mean, that, that's completely legitimate. But if this is what you sign on for, if working with other creatives is what you're signing on for, then, then, then try to make it creatives that you respect and creatives that you and uh, you know like their work and all this kind of, I mean, all of that's part of it, but you have to keep your ego out of it. If you're going to do this for a living, that that's, that's the biggest thing. And the biggest lesson that I learned from my run on Spider-Man um, is that if if the creative team is having fun, so will the readers. And if the creative team isn't having fun, if any one of them are just doing it by rote, if if any one of them isn't committed and, and enjoying themselves, then I I think that shows in the work, you know. But because even if it's none of our none of our books were perfect, not a single one of them was. The, the pure, uncut, 
perfection that is comics. How could they be? But the reason that we're still talking about it all these years later, and the reason that, that you know certain issues that we did resonate and everything, because the people that read them had fun. It, we 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 get the privilege of being a part of their personal nostalgia, and 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 they enjoyed it. And but I think the enjoyment that they, that anybody gets from our work comes from the fact that we are enjoying doing the work. And if Tom doesn't agree with that, then I never want to see him. <laughs> <laughs> I you know I, I believe in my heart. That you give me two, two or three more years at this stuff, and I'll finally start to get good at it. <laughs> uh, but I, but I need that because I'm two or three years away. I, that, that's an important part of any creative process, though. If you think you've arrived, which is also one of the things that feeds ego, because if you think you've arrived and you don't think your partners, your creative partners, you know, are as good as you. That's where a lot of ego is going to come from. But if you think you've arrived, find something else to do. It's funny you say this because I've been cutting Mark out of the podcast for years. (laughs) (laughs) You wish. (laughs) If I get to the point where I've learned everything I need to know about making the perfect comic book and, and the only thing holding me back are idiots. Then it's time to move on. Well, yeah, but I would never think that. Yes, you're an idiot, but you're not a destructive <laughs> idiot. You're not an idiot for holding me back. You're an idiot that rises me up. <laughs> I, I, I've had discussions with a lot of uh, self-proclaimed geniuses um, who are writers, and, and they're constantly complaining that the, the pencilers are not giving them, you know, uh, are, are not, you know, Giving their their stories the attention or, or delicacy that they they deserve, and I've said, well, then maybe you know maybe comic books are not for you. Maybe you should just be writing prose, because you know sometimes you get an idea that works, you know, is only going to work in prose. Should just do prose then, <laughs> <You know? laughs> or or just get an AI program. Oh no! And make sure that your story, make sure that your stories are about six-fingered and seven-fingered people. You know that. <laughs> so someone at work who brought that up, they're like, "Oh, we should invest in Chat GP." I'm like, "Do you want to put me out of a job? What is wrong with you? <laughs> no, <laughs> we're not doing no, AI, that, that's another AI tool, narratives." <laughs> Tom, you said it's going to take you two to three years to get good at this thing. And so, like, I'm guessing, what are you working on now? If you can say anything, you alluded to stuff earlier. Is is there anything you guys have that's recently out that is coming out soon that you could plug here uh, before we send you on your way? Well, we do have a, a two part A next story coming in the Avengers Infinity thing. Get the impression that'll be out in a couple of weeks. Uh, Pat Olaf and I are working on a four-issue limited series for Marvel, which um, is an odd one. And, and <laughs> I, I don't know when they're going to announce that. So I can just tell you, keep keep your eyes peeled because <laughs> because we, we, we do something. We actually have a lot of action in this comic book uh, and characterization and, uh, and heart. 
and we stick more in four issues than they normally do in 12. Um, and, I, and I have a hunch that uh, people who like our stuff uh, will enjoy this. You know, Ron and I and, and, and uh, Pat and I have also done some, some material for another new publisher who's not ready to announce this stuff yet. And when they are, it'll come out. And, and I still do Archie stuff because they asked me to do a lot of stuff and shove it into a five-page story. And it's such a creative challenge that I just can't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> really great. Um, Ron, how about you? Well, I'm still working with uh, Darren Henry and Sit Comics doing the Blue Baron. Uh, I'm, I'm pledged to, uh, you know, clean up my schedule a little bit more and, uh, and produce more regularly for Darren. Uh, so I'm still very much involved in that and, uh, I'm doing commissions through catskillcomics.com. And occasionally when I get an offer that I can't refuse of like an A next thing or a character I care about or something like that, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll make the time to do it but uh at this point i'm pretty content doing blue baron and, and commissions i've got commissions to keep me busy until i'm old and gray so uh and i'm not gray yet so <laughs> and, and i'll plug ron for you i'll plug your facebook page which i think has been really awesome and exciting um to kind of keep up with all of the new art that you've been doing if yeah i usually I, I usually try to to do previews when i feel it's appropriate i do previews of stuff that's that, that's going to be coming out and yeah, you know, it's frustrating because I don't know where where the where you can really get everybody's ear anymore to let them know that things are coming up. But that's one of the reasons I joined Facebook is I saw Pat Olaf was using it to let people know he was still alive and still producing. <laughs> so that's what I use it for as well. Our daily check-in that Ron is still breathing. So there we uh, go. Uh, Proof of life. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. Well, hey guys, uh, thank you so much. You know, for for coming back on the show. You know, we're about to cross over the threshold of doing this for ten years, and you know, one of the best things that we've gotten out of those ten years, I think, is like making relationships uh, uh, with different creators. And you guys were amongst the first people we ever talked to on the show, and I know it really set us on the right path with like, you know, how we could approach these kind of things and, and what we could expect from, you know, creators in terms of input and, and also just how much you guys were really warm to us all, all the way back at uh, Connecticut or Connecticut, whatever they used to call it, uh, you know, a decade ago. So uh, thank you again for, for all the support you've given our show over the years. It's all your fault. <laughs> no, you you got a cool logo inked by Salvatore. I mean, yeah, no, trust me. Uh, uh, I uh, I get I get mail about that like every week. How we have the coolest logo in in podcasts. So I do I do owe that to you, Ron and, and Sal. It's been a pleasure from the very beginning. Happy anniversary when the ten years does roll around. And uh, you've always been. I've said it before on my Facebook page, and I'll say it again. You've always been one of the smarter, uh, more insightful. Spider-Man podcasts out there, so uh, you know you, you you've earned your bones. There's no doubt about that. Nobody did it for you. Well, thank you. Either way, thank you both. We can't wait to talk to you again. All right, thank you. Thanks very much. Mark. Thank you. Take care, Mark. Take you got care. it. Don't close Take your it easy, guys.
All right. Thanks again to the legendary Tom DeFalco and, as Mark said, the equally legendary Ron Friends for coming back on our show. Like I said, we've talked to Tom and Ron a number of times over the years. So if you want to hear more, I cannot encourage you enough to dig through our catalog and our back issues to hear more. We have, you know, I think two or three interviews with Tom and probably a half dozen to a dozen with Ron. (laughs) So, you know, there's plenty of more where that came from. If you enjoyed what we just talked about today, but we're at the end of the show. So Mark, why don't you bring things to a close? Hoo ha. Well, it's that time time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning into this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this podcast exists because of listener support on Patreon. For only $3.99 a month, you can help support our show's existence while getting early episodes, including the reviews that we do of the new comics, this interview with Tom and Ron, you'll get exclusive artwork, and a ton of other bonuses. So, you know, it's an awesome thing to check out. You can go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com and click on the big Patreon button and it will guide you there. And as I say every week, a thank you to everyone who already supports us and all that we do for making it possible. To download our earliest episodes, including interviews with creators like J.M. DeMatteis, Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, Mark Bagley, and more, subscribe to our Amazing Spider Talk Back Issues podcast on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coast. The video version of our show is available on YouTube and was edited by Alex Galucki. Our artwork comes handcrafted from these artists, Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, and Ray Sumzer. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider-Madge, and our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton. So, Mark, until Jim Owsley shows up in our podcasting booth and ends our partnership on Amazing Spider Talk, what's our motto? Wow, that's a dark turn, Dan. Uh, With great podcasts, there must also come the Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, Don't miss the next installment.